Well, ever since the very first time that I had the privilege of stepping foot in this valley, I was kind of overwhelmed by the view of the mountains here on that eastern front, the Wasatch Mountains here. I come from Chicago, and so uh, that area, the tallest mountain, the, the hill that everyone went to for sledding used to be a garbage dump that they just put dirt on, and that was the highest spot for many, many miles. So coming here and seeing just how grand those mountains were were just amazing to me, breathtaking. Whatever thoughts I had in my mind regarding that would change after I had the experience to climb to the top of Lone Peak. If you you were to look at this front of the mountains, the one that's right up against Draper, kind of the southern mountain in our valley here, is Lone Peak. From most portions of the valley, it looks to be the tallest. It's actually not the tallest, but it looks that way because of where it is. A friend of mine, a neighbor, took me out four in the morning to the base of that mountain the first summer we were here, and we spent the next eight hours doing a 12-mile hike to the top and back. And it was a difficult hike, to say the least, But there were things that I learned about that peak that I didn't know were true. I didn't realize just how beautiful the landscape changed so many times throughout the hike. I didn't realize that at the very top, there's a cirque, kind of a a big, flat, giant plain, the size of a small city at the base of a mighty precipice. And and the, the trail takes you up behind the backside of one singular peak. It's distinct from any of the other peaks in the valley or or next to this valley in that you don't get to the top and then wonder which boulder is the highest. There's one point that's all the way at the top, and if you were to lay down on that rock and slide yourself out to the edge, you could look down a sheer cliff hundreds of feet down to the cirque that from down here looks like tiny. Whatever thoughts I had in my mind regarding the grandeur, the splendor, the magnificence of the mountain from down here, when I got onto that mountain, when I experienced that, what has gone on in my mind has been an increase in the view of that mountain. The way that you get to know God, I think, can be like that and ought to be. The closer you get to Him, The more you get to know him, the more experience you have in his word and time in prayer and experience of life, the greater he will become in your mind. If I could offer you just one thing to take from your time at the Mission Church, whether you were to visit us for one week or ten years, if there were to be one doctrine clarified, one theological concept crystallized in your mind, it would be this. You need a high view of God and an ever-increasing one. Because a low view of God is a universal problem. In fact, it's at the root of every other problem that exists. You can trace every sin, every wrong way of thinking, back down to, ultimately, a low view of God. And this is true for believers and non-believers alike. 
Christians and non-Christians, whether today you are a Christian or not, you need to see God as greater as you see him today. No one's going to get to heaven. Stand before Almighty God. See him face to face, as the book of Revelation says, and then say, oh, you're smaller than I expected. We cannot think too highly of God. And you need the kind of view that commands all your attention and affection. The kind of view that tramples all over your sinful flesh. The kind of view of God that does not fade in mind over time. The kind of right view that makes you forget your hobbies, forsake your sins, and demands the highest devotion. Psalm 145, 1 through 5 says this, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Psalm just keeps cycling that same amazing speech. His greatness is beyond what we can even imagine. If you were to take a tour to the Grand Canyon, it would be arrogant folly for a tour guide to stand between you and the view of the canyon, to obstruct your view. All he ought to do is simply step aside, point to the canyon and say, behold. And as a preacher of God's word, that's what I am to do. To make much of him, not much of you, and not much of me. Our text today, I hope, will give you a clearer bigger view of God than you have right now. And our text can be found in the starting point in a single verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. If you have your Bibles, you can go turn there. I'm going to read this one verse out loud and then pray. And then we're going to jump back into the Old Testament to read in longer section that is the full story of what actually is being stated in a summary here. And then we're going to summarize, be answering two questions that come out of that passage. I'm going to read uh, Hebrews 11.30 for you now. If you have your Bibles, you you can follow along. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Let's pray. Father, this morning, with this one sentence, we can be launched back into a time in history that is beyond significant. Help us to understand it. Help us to clarify why this is so important for us today. Father, I think that there are some hurdles we have to overcome in order to really gain insight into what's going on here and why it's recalled in Hebrews. So help us to do that. Father, help me to have this sermon just be a gushing of my love and respect and admiration for you and for your word in truth, in clarity, and in helpfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, that verse is, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled 
for seven days. Reminder, Hebrews chapter 11 is just telling us about a whole uh, list of events in Israelite history that point to the faith of the people of old, that we'd be encouraged. Here it tells us about the faith of the people who had encircled Jericho. That time period in history goes back to the days of the Exodus when God had delivered his people out of the bondage and slavery, out of the hand of of, of, uh, Pharaoh by Moses leading them out and would eventually bring them to the promised land and he he would tell them to go into the promised land, to take over the land, to drive out the inhabitants. Jericho would be the first city that the Israelites would come against in their conquest of the promised land. Jericho still stands today. You can go visit it. I've had had the great privilege of getting a chance to walk around the city of Jericho today. It is widely regarded as one of the oldest cities in the history of the world. It is accepted as the oldest walled city that has ever been found. It's been continuously occupied for the past nearly 3,000 years. If you were to go check it out, it's fascinating to see the events that are covered in this passage actually seen. You can see the walls falling down. You can observe how an army would have run up and in. It's really fascinating to witness. I want to read for you Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. This, this gives us the Old Testament uh, telling of the story that was summarized in Hebrews 11. You can follow me there or just listen along. I'm going to read through 21 verses. Uh, just kind of just go right through them so you hear the story of what was taking place on the day that's mentioned in Hebrews 11.30. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, 
They marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. This is a famous Old Testament story. But admittedly, it's a shocking one. Before we move on then, we have a few questions that need sorting out. Two specifically we're going to cover today. First is this. Why the seven days marching, the seven times, the, the horns? Why that particular tactic? Now, as you might guess, military strategy plays no role whatsoever here. God instructs Joshua to perform what amounts to a religious ceremony. In other words, if you were to find yourself in battle, you should not think that this tactic should be employed again. This was not a battle strategy, but a demonstration of trust in God. For the people, this would be their first test of faith in the promised land. The very last time that the Israelites had come to the promised land, if you remember the story, they sent spies in. Joshua, who's leading this group here, was one of those spies. And when they went in, they surveyed the land. They came back out, and 10 of the spies were so fearful that they got everybody else to be afraid of just how big the enemy was, how huge and walled the cities. And they said, there's no way we can take the cities. There's no way we can take the land. And their cowardice angered God. He sent them into the wilderness for 40 years until another generation would arise, one who would not be too afraid. They thought, you see, that first generation, that they were not strong enough to drive out the Canaanites, and they were right. But they were wrong in thinking that it would depend on their ability. So what was the difference between that first generation out of Egypt and the second one? The first generation out of Egypt were not like worse fighters. It was not as though the second generation spent 40 years training for battle so they'd be extra prepared to fight. They were being trained by the Lord to trust him, to have faith in what he was going to do. That first generation had thought too little of God. 
And this is the first way that our text today reminds us to think higher of him. This generation, second one, in contrast with the previous one, believed in God. And so this is why their faith is being commended, even in the days of the writing of the book of Hebrews. This is a perennial issue for the Israelites. This this keeps happening to them. God does something to show he is faithful and trustworthy, and the people stop trusting him anyway. It goes on repeat all throughout the Old Testament. But this very same problem is one that we struggle with today. But God works in unexpected ways. God knew, of course, when he instructed the people how he wanted them to operate around Jericho, he knew that they thought it was silly. He doesn't need an angel there standing at his right hand who turns to him and says, hey, God, just to let you know, people think that's weird. As though God wouldn't know, oh, really? Oh, it made sense to me. Doesn't need some go-between, a liaison to the human mind. God knew. And he works in unexpected ways. And God regularly does things in a way that you and I would never dream would make sense. In fact, God's working in these unanticipated ways in the Old Testament paves the way for an unexpected plan for the Messiah to come. This follows into the New Testament. It's not as though we close the Old Testament and now God says, okay, all this is going to make sense to y'all. He sends the Messiah, his perfect son, to come into the world as a baby in a a manger, not, not in a palace, not a great and mighty king coming in on a war horse. And the way that he was going to defeat death was by going to the cross, by dying. All of these things. The New Testament people, just like us, would have been like, wait, wait, how are you going to win in this way? But God gets glory through his people obeying, especially when we don't understand. Especially when we have to go, I don't, I don't understand, Lord. I don't get it, but you're saying to go, and I I will trust you. I will trust you. A man who leans not on his own understanding is a wise man. We see this all the time in our lives. Have you ever been in a situation where you calculated what you thought would have been the best strategy in a circumstance? This makes sense. This is what we should go do. And then opened the Bible and went... Sounds like the Bible's telling me to do an entirely different approach. Like this. This happens all the time to us if we're honest with ourselves. You might think, you might strategize that the way to defeat, to defeat your enemy is to fight back against him. But Jesus commands you to love your enemy, to pray for him. You might think that the way to grow in wealth is hoarding possessions. But God tells us to be generous with what we've been given, that it's better to give than to receive. Brothers, you may think that the best way to deal with disparity in your marriage is to demand that your wife manage issues in the same way that you would. But the Bible commands that you honor her as the weaker vessel and not to demand that she respond to everything as though she were your brother. Sisters, you might think that the way to fix your husband is to resist his role as the head of the house. To fight back, prove him wrong. But the Bible tells wives to be subject to your own husbands so that even some who do not obey the word may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. 
even in the big picture kingdom growing endeavors, to have this world filled with more Christians that might prompt us to think whatever it takes to survive so there will be more Christians is the way we'll win. But God's way to grow the kingdom is for more believers to lay down their lives. You see, the Bible often demands that we do things that are contrary to what our flesh would think we ought to do. Do not trust your heart to come up with a better strategy than God. Do not trust your heart to come up with a better strategy than God. Recently, I've been challenged in my thinking about the way that I've always assumed that God wanted to use the mission church and the people in our body to reach our county and the state of Utah. I've been challenged recently. I don't know what the Lord wants. I've realized recently that I've kind of made a list of things that I always just assumed and thought, and maybe the Lord has something totally different in mind. I've been challenged on that recently. God, we, I don't want my strategy. I don't want what seems like it makes most sense to me on paper. I want what you say. This honors the Lord. This gives him great glory when we move forward even when we don't understand in obedience to him. And often we can see how God's unexpected ways, when we follow through with those, can actually end up fulfilling so much more than we could have ever expected. Simply put, his ways are better than our ways. Sometimes I wonder if we're going to be in heaven someday and for millions of years, what we'll do in glory to God is him tell the story of the lives and the moments of every single person that's ever lived. And whenever we get to a moment where something happened in their lives, like it happens every day, God will explain how that moment tied to this one and caused this and this and this. And God was using that for this great and mighty glorious purpose. And we'll go, oh, you had a, you had a plan. And not like, a, not like this kind of plan, not a little kind of plan, but a huge, eternal, lasting one. And we will weep before the glory of God. And, oh, Lord, forgive us for not trusting you then. You knew. You knew. And we will agree with God in everything that has ever happened. Every wicked deed that has ever gone down in this age. We will go, that's what you were doing, God. Everything will be redeemed. Why then would God say to march seven days and on the seventh, seven times and the horns? I mean, we can speculate. We can talk about the number seven and how it's all over the Bible, the number of completeness and perfection, the number of six is falling short of that. We can talk about the priesthood and the people in front and behind and the ark and the, the ram's horns and all the significance, Old and New Testament. We can speculate on all of this, all this. But quite honestly, the Bible does not explicitly say why God chose that. God commands and we obey. That's how it's to work. Well, this question makes us curious. There's another question that for many is much more pressing when we talk about passages like this one. And that's this. How ought we think about conquest? Well, this is not... A, say this clearly as an expository preacher. This is not the main purpose of the text. The text is not here in order to explain to us why conquest. How is that okay? But because it is such a significant hurdle for so many people in our day, I think it's worth dealing with. 
I hope to do that in our remaining time. Let me ask the question one more way. How can a loving God approve of genocide? Just say it flatly. How can a loving God approve of genocide? It is undeniable that God approves of the eradication of men, women, and children all throughout the Bible, all over. Perhaps the greatest example of this is the flood, in which God himself wipes out everyone on earth except for the eight occupants of the ark. In fact, since God is sovereign over all things, all death occurs beneath the umbrella of God's ultimate sovereignty. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Jesus picks this small, valued, little, insignificant creature, flies around everywhere. No, no, no one even looks twice when they see one fly past. None of those little sparrows will fall to the ground, die apart from the father. All death occurs beneath the umbrella of his sovereignty. Now, while that is, of course, true, that answer does not quite get to the heart of what many people feel when they read a passage like this. The Canaanite conquest seems to present an even harder question for us. So I'm going to say it yet another way, to put more teeth on it, to not avoid the difficulty of the question. How can an all-holy perfectly kind, loving, patient, merciful God commission his people to carry out genocide. I think that most people have a category in their minds that allows for an all-loving God commanding for one nation to go to battle against another. The idea of combatants becoming casualties of war, although awful, is not nearly as hard to justify as the slaughter of an entire people group. That seems to be the problem. And that is certainly what is happening here. You must know that. That is definitely what's going on. Make no mistake about it. We can't get cute with this text. Ah, devote to destruction. He gave him a puppy and let him go. No. This is heavy, real, We must not try to find a way to get God off the hook in this dilemma. We don't do that with the word of God. We read it, believe it, proclaim it, and let God deal with it. And for the record, this is certainly not the first time in the Bible that God commissions the killing of innocent people. Job is a story that predates this particular experience where God provokes Satan prompts him to kill the innocent children of a wealthy man named Job. Take all of his property. Destroy everything he's worked for. Later in history, the Israelites themselves will be at the receiving end of this same kind of judgment. It'll come later in the Bible. Uh, one place might be the Assyrian destruction of Israel. That's when the Assyrians came against the northern kingdom of Israel and wiped them out. Uh, Sennacherib was the king who was leading that. I'll show you a passage from 2 Kings chapter 19. This is where God is speaking about 
his plan for sending Sennacherib in. This is what it looks like. Just look at the, look at the gravity of a verse like this. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you, Sennacherib, who he's talking to, should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. These Israelites would be on the receiving end. Not once, but a few more times in history. And God was behind it. Regarding the Canaanites of our passage today, their destruction had been prophesied many times in the generation previous, many times. In the 40 years, you're going to get in there, your your job is to wipe out people in the land. That's what you're supposed to do, to a man. Kick them all out, destroy everyone there. But even farther back into Genesis, 400 years earlier, if I go to Genesis 15, this is when God is speaking to Abram, who will become Abraham. And he says this about the Amorites. That was the people, the name of the people who will later become the Canaanites in that area. He says this to Abram. And they, your people, shall come back here, Canaan, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, God knew exactly how many sins, what they would do, how awful they would be. He knew all of that. And they had not yet filled up that bucket deserving of wrath until a time. And when they reach that time, the Canaanites will have become a cancer on the land, and God was commanding his people to remove every bit of it. Now, just as a fence post out for us in our trying to think through these big, weighty things together, it's very critical we see this. God said this to warn his people about wrong thinking regarding the conquest. So let's all get on board and listen. God is warning his people from thinking wrongly about this. He says this in Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 5. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. He says, listen, watch out. Don't think wrongly. I'm going to read for you verses 4 and 5, Deuteronomy 9. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. Israel was to be used as the hammer wielded by God. Why? Because he looks down and saw, look at all these good people. Look at all those bad people. Let's make the good people kill the bad people. That is not what's going down. And he warns the people, don't think that before you go in. Their destruction is between me and them, not because you are better. Critical that these people thought rightly. Some ask here, Rich, this is, this is hard. Isn't God good and loving? Patient, merciful, generous, gracious? Yes. Yes, God is all of those things and more. Our culture has diluted the real God of the Bible in the minds of many people. And sometimes this wrong thinking imposes itself upon believers. God is a God of love. 
And he is also a God of justice and of wrath. And he intensely hates all sin. He intensely hates all sin. I want to show you a few passages to see. Nahum 1-2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. It's not uncommon in our days for Christians to cite and quote and write on a wall the very true verse that God is love. Very true. Amen to that. Less common for this one to be on the wall. But the Lord is avenging and wrathful. What does that mean? What's he going to do as a result of that, that being his nature? Isaiah 34, 2. These are all over the Old Testament. Here's some helpful uh, summary ones for you. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. I grew up in evangelicalism. I grew up in Christian churches. We heard the gospel, praise the Lord. I'm very grateful for much of that. But the way that we spoke about the nature of God and his disposition towards humanity was much different than what I see in the Bible today. Much different than the clear language. People would say, well, God doesn't have any, he either has no emotion in his destruction, it's just kind of an exchange. They sin, they get that. They don't love him, they're going to get judgment. Or there's this kind of emotional weeping, I don't want, I don't want to bring this on you. But the Lord is enraged. He's a Lord that has hot indignation every day, who is furious against all the host of these nations. This is the dangerous God the Bible tells us of. Psalm eleven five. look what this says. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. All my life I've been told, and I've heard from Christians, God hates sin but loves sinners. God hates sin, but he does not hate sinners. That's not true. God hates sinners. Psalm 5, 4 through 6 says this, For you are not a God who dwells in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. You need to see this. This, this is God's disposition towards sinfulness. What's more, this is God's disposition towards sinners. There's a tendency for Christians, especially preachers, to avoid this stuff. It's a good way to empty churches in our day. But we cannot do that. We cannot shrink back against texts of the Bible like this. We can't quickly hurdle over. So God, you know, had the people in circle, Jericho, they just died and then moved on. Hold on. There's questions here. What do we do with this in our mind? How do we think rightly about this? 
Because God's disposition towards the people of Jericho was hatred, abhorrent. It wasn't because of the righteousness in the Israelites. It was because they deserved all of God's judgment. And he gets to determine it. But this problem is not an ancient one. This is a current one. No one is innocent. No one is innocent. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Christians know this. I think to be a Christian you have to believe this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To be a Christian you must believe there is no one righteous. No, not one. To be a Christian you must believe there is no one good but God alone. The beginning of the gospel and your fallenness and your sinfulness. But, but what happens sometimes is this thought. But, but doesn't God reserve his fury for only those who commit the worst of sins? This says that the boastful. Have you ever boasted? You ever had pride in your heart? You ever, you ever thought well of yourself, thought better of yourself than you should have? Ever let that come off your lips? James 2, 10 through 11, really, really presses this in for us. And it shows us just how in trouble we are. James 2, 10 through 11 says this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Are you, are you getting this? This means that you're either a lawbreaker or perfect. That is it. That's the line. The line down the middle. Lawbreakers over here, perfect over there. And this is so important for believers. We've we got to see this. We have to get the, the gospel tuned in in our minds and our eyes. We have to get a right view of God so clear that we're not double vision on this, that we see it. That the move from being an unbeliever to a believer was not here to here. This was eternity altering. I've shared the gospel with many strangers on the street before and heard many people try to find a way out of the judgment of God against the sinfulness of man. And many try to conjure up an image of an innocent person. This is really, really common. The boy on the island, the person who never knew they were doing wrong, all these things. But even if you were to try to conjure up an image of an innocent person, which the Bible does not grant, no one is innocent before God. But even if you were to try to make somebody up in your mind, it's definitely not you. What starts as an intellectual exercise then quickly becomes a personal crisis. And still some people try to play the ignorance game. Well, I mean, how could God hold me accountable for what I didn't know? First, that's not how it works. But more to the point, even if that were true, which it isn't, it's too late for you now. Because I'm telling this to you today. You have sinned against an all-perfect God. You have done the things that have set you at odds against him. And this is the problem. The problem is not just sin, it's sinners. 
sinners. This is not merely a disease God has to get out of you. You are the problem. I am the problem. Sinners. We deserve the hatred of God. When God acted against Canaan, all all of the cities, not just Jericho. Today we see Jericho. When he acted against that, he was righteous and just to do so. All of the people there deserved eternal judgment. And this is what makes the gospel so amazing. Because this being true, getting this in your minds, getting this straight, must challenge. Then what hope can we have? Jesus. Jesus. How is it possible for someone deserving of the hatred of God can be loved by him? And not just a little love, a meh, you can come in but a taking of our place on the cross, a bearing of our sins. Jesus said, greater love hath no man. And he laid down his life for his friends. He showed us the greatest possible demonstration of love. How is it possible for one deserving of hatred can receive the love of God? Because of the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. That is how. Christians, we we ought never file down the sharp teeth to the gospel, never soften the blow, but proclaim it. You and I deserve hell, eternal conscious torment separated from God for eternity, forever. But by his good grace, he sent his perfect son to live a life we ought to live. He's the only one on the perfect side of that line, the only non-lawbreaker, and he goes to the cross and he bears the wrath of God on behalf of all who will ever believe in him. And you want, you want to get eternal life that he earned? Do you know how you do that? Not by works. Not by saying, I can be righteous. But by saying, there's no way for me to be righteous. Look what I've done. Look what he has done. And by faith in Jesus alone, repenting of your sins, turning away from all the works you've done, even the ones you think were good, and turning to him and saying, let his works be mine. Only by belief will he cross over to the line and deserving of death and we get eternal life. That's the only way that it can work. If you are not a believer today, this is the call. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is the only way for you. And if anybody tells you you are not deserving of judgment, they lie. You deserve it like I do. You've got to turn. And every single voice that confesses sin The cries out to God will be saved. You and I, you're a believer this morning. This is not this little shift. I went from kind of on God's bad side, I wasn't the best neighbor, to now we're we're buddies who go to the same barbecue. This is, I was an enemy of God. I was attacking him and his army with battle-ready plans and following the ways of the world and in my own sinfulness and flesh at whatever level I could have understood at the age that this happens for you. There is no conscientious objector who stands between enemies and friends of God. There's only two. You're one or the other. And in God's supernatural goodness, he saves people that were once enemies. He justifies the ungodly. Not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of his son. Do you see how big grace is? 
the absolute destruction that took place in the conquest shows us our plight. If we see anything shocking there, don't couch it in Old Testament. Don't stick it in history. Don't just kind of relegate it to ancient texts that are kind of hard for us to know. Maybe God tempered over time. Maybe his anger cooled and now now we're all right. Don't do that. The fury and wrath of God against sin remains. And the only way that can be dealt with is when that fury is extinguished on Jesus Christ. This is why God's great love, even when he works in our lives, brings hardship on us. The very next passage in Hebrews 12, literally a few verses later, we're going to get there in a few weeks, says that that's discipline. That's the loving discipline of God for a believer because we are no longer under his wrath. All of it has been poured on his son. We want for the people that we love in our lives to believe and join us in the grace of God that we do not deserve that we may proclaim it to the world. And that's the next part. This Canaanite conquest, this, this walls of Jericho falling, each of the cities being toppled one after the other, burned to the ground. This conquest of that time is an archetype of a greater and more eternally significant conquest. The days of conquest aren't gone. They've actually multiplied in our day. There is a greater conquest to be had today with those who are the people of God, with two main differences. Number one, we don't fight with swords, but with the word of God. Today, no Christian nation ought to, on the basis of faith, attack and try to overcome other nations. This is not the way that we're supposed to expand the kingdom of God. Not by shedding blood, but proclaiming the shed blood of the righteous one. That's how we win today. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. For the person who's concerned that when we preach this kind of stuff that it'll prompt Christians to seek another physical conquest, that's folly. No such thing. We preach the proclamation of the gospel as the weapon of war that goes out from our lips. Today, it is every bit as much of a conquest, even if without swords. And the second main difference of our conquest today is this. We go to the world. It's important to see this. This is an out, not in. This is, this is the, one of the big differences we see in the Old Testament. The people outside of the promised land were to go in and take it. That was the idea. They were to go in and take it and remain. And how many times were they supposed to take over these other countries and go re-inhabit new lands? They weren't. That was their home. Even when battles would rage against others who came at them, that was where they were supposed to be. If you wanted to live and operate as a person of God, you come to Israel. You come to Jerusalem. That was the way. It was a come and see type of time in the old covenant. But in the new covenant, Jesus reverses the direction in the great commission. And he sends us to go out to the world in conquest. Now the whole of the land of the world is ours. Acts 1.8, Jesus says before he ascends into heaven, 
After he dies on the cross and he raises to new life because he cannot be conquered by death. They cannot be held by death. And he says this to his disciples before he ascends into heaven at the right hand of the Father. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's how it was supposed to go. We are no longer being set to fight toward Jerusalem. We are the new Jerusalem. And we take it to the end of the world. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our weapon is the word of God. And our war engines, the ministries that proclaim the gospel. With them, we lay siege to all the God-hating, soul-destroying fortresses of our age. And whether in this life or in death, in this age or the one to come, every citizen and every king, every slave and every master, every peasant, every noble will bow and declare that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And just as God's command was for the absolute destruction of those Canaanite cities, the same is true with worldliness out there and even in our own hearts. You have to know it's easy for a pastor, a preacher in my my position to uh, take punches at the world. Go get them, pastor. But sometimes we need to take those punches on ourselves. We are to tear down the idols. There's no room for even one of them to stand any longer. Regarding our advance in this world, we are not permitted to give even one inch of ground to the enemy in our own hearts, in our own lives, and out in the world. We never get to the point, ah, I've repented of enough. Ah, I've I've worked on enough. Ah, I'm I'm godly enough. Ah, I'm like Jesus enough. No, we're never going to be perfect in this day. Jesus' perfection is what's applied to us but every day will be a battle. It'll be war, waged. That's why we take the word so seriously because you need this challenge tomorrow when you wake up and you're gonna need it the next day and the next and the next. The world hates this stuff, hates it. What's more, your flesh, your flesh hates a big true view of God. Your flesh needs to get roughed up now and then. Let our view of God be great, as he is great. As I said in the beginning, my experience on the physical mountain out here, Salt Lake, after that experience, my my respect for and seeing the danger of the mountain increased. And if any person in this world tries to lie to you and to tell you, ah, God's not that big. He's not that dangerous. He's not that fearsome. He's not that serious. These words aren't that important. That is a lie that we reject flat out. Let our advance of the kingdom be every bit as faith-filled as that of the Israelites at Jericho. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray that we would develop a kind of love for and familiarity with the gospel, that it would flow from us, But Lord, that every time that we thought of it, that we talked about it, that we proclaimed it, 
that we would feel the cut, that we would, we would feel the blows upon our own heart and soul, that we would be reminded of our own wickedness and what we deserve, that it would never just become words to us, but that we would be quick to challenge our own hearts and our own thinking on things, that we would refuse to believe any of the lies of the world that would try to soften the grittiness of the gospel. Help us to be those who genuinely love and care for the lost brothers and sisters in our lives, for those who are neighbors and friends and, and family members and, and fellow employees. And Lord, help us to care so much about the lost people of this world and the desire that they would worship you, that we wouldn't care what the world says, but that we would have to proclaim what is true. Father, let us be a people who have, have faith in you. Let us be a people that when we read passages that are difficult or are a struggle for us, that we would just, like the people at Jericho, say, I don't know why. I don't get, this is big. Why march seven times? Why shout? I feel like a fool shouting. Father, help us to be like they were, overcome all of that and obey. Just obey you. Do what you've commanded for your glory. Father, we look back at that story at that time, and that smoldering city is still there today, and millions of people check it out every single year, and they see what you did thousands of years ago. Let all that we do today stand as a testimony of how wonderful you are, not how strategic we can be, not how cunning, not how good we can come up with plans and solve problems and figure it all out, but that we are a believing people. Lord, for those who are here today hearing this and have not embraced the gospel, have not repented of their sins and turned in faith to Jesus, I pray that it would be pressed upon their hearts. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin and they would cry out in faith to you. And they would join the believers throughout history who have done what is folly in the eyes of the world in obedience to your name. Father, help our numbers grow and grow and grow because you deserve more worship and more people loving you as you deserve. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.